welcome back to My Second Self and I. My name is Matt. The other voice you'll hear from time to time is Alex. That's my forever co-host, the voice in my head. Hi, we're glad you're here. If this is your first time listening to me, thank you for trying a new thing. It's important to try new things. If you're a returning listener, thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the journey so far. This week is a little bit different than our normal format. I thought it might be really, really fun to talk about a variety of different strange things that actually happened. I might continue doing episodes like this as a series if you guys like this episode, because I had a ton of fun putting this one together. One really easy way to let me know if you like this episode is via the app you're listening on. If you have the option to leave feedback in the form of a review, tell me what you like or don't like, and I will fix it. It's really that simple. But I'm not here today to beg you for your kind words or money. Though I won't turn those things away if offered. PayPal.com slash HighStoryPodcast. Old name, don't worry about it. Alex, I'm right here. You don't have to yell. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Do you have everything you need? Is the phone charging? Um, for the moment, it appears to be. But bring me the big book on the shelf over there. Uh, which book? The big one. It's way bigger than all the other ones. The, the one covered in blood and hair? Yeah, the big one. Bring it here. Where the hell did you get this thing? Half-price books. Don't overthink things, Alex. You should know that by now I'm crafty. Today, we are going to talk about three separate, incredibly bizarre incidents that happened in the United States. The stories will get progressively creepier and weirder as the episode moves along. Oh, that's all we're doing today? Just campfire style? Yeah, man. There's beauty and simplicity. Grab some marshmallows, maybe some hot dogs, maybe a light jacket if it gets cool outside. We're currently in false spring where I live, so it could happen. But let's just keep it simple and have a good time today. The first story in what I'm calling the... Anthology of Weirdness! Takes place in Maine, starting back in 1986. I can't do a good Maine accent, but imagine a lot of this being narrated by the Pepperidge Farms guy. I'll try, but it might just come out as Boston, I don't know. Without further ado, on with Todd's story time and the magic of metaphorical books! I don't think that was a good main. I don't think it was. He was a simple man. He lived a simple life. Yet some say he was criminally minded. Some give him more heroic qualities. Others still say he might not know right from wrong, or that maybe he's not all bad, just... different. Astonishingly, for a period of almost 30 years in the woods of northern Maine, a local legend had circulated around the town of Fairfield, or maybe Rome. I can't remember. I think Fairfield, or... Either way, a legend of a hermit, a shadowy figure that lived somewhere in the woods just outside of town. But this was no legend. The hermit was as real as you or me. Hey, what about me? Yes, Alex. You too. Yay! He lived in seclusion from 1986 until 2013 in a campsite he'd established nearby some cabins in the North Pond area of Belgrade Lakes. Save for two very brief encounters, Christopher Thomas Knight had zero contact with humans for nearly 30 years. That was longer than my entire life up until 2013. That is insane. I was born, went to school, made friends, hit puberty, hit a tree on a four-wheeler, lost friends, moved to Texas, graduated high school, tried a different career path that didn't pan out, then moved into my first apartment, and then this guy sees another person for the first time. He'd graduated from Lawrence High School in Fairfield, it was Fairfield, in 1984. It could be that he'd simply had enough of modern society and the judgmental opinions of his peers, or he could have found inspiration in a book. Whatever his motivations were, he just up and decided one day, you know what? I've had enough of this town and pretty much everybody in it. I'm gonna go live in the woods. This man is 20 years old right now. Nobody even reported him missing. He had a good relationship with his parents, but emotion wasn't a huge part of their daily interactions. In reality, it appears as though Christopher took a road trip to Florida one day shortly after graduating, and upon his return trip, he ran out of gas, grabbed his tent out of the trunk, left the keys in the car, and just wandered off into the woods, drifting slowly but surely further and further north to the location we know him from today. The majority of known interactions with Christopher come from the owners of the cabins that he liked to steal from. I say interactions kind of lightly as that they didn't really see him in person, they just kind of knew about him with cameras and stuff. 
The cabin owners said they first encountered him, kinda, in 1997. They'd stocked the fridge and pantry with tons and tons and tons of food, and came back a few days later and every bit of it was gone. All of it. Somebody had come by and stolen everything of value from inside the tiny cabin. One thing in particular he liked was batteries. He, he loved batteries. Not the stuff they were in, no, he wouldn't take the device, just the batteries. He'd also take food like meat and bread and beer and cereal, mac and cheese and hot dogs were a big favorite of his apparently. I, I guess they'd be easy to cook. Or just eat if he's feeling lazy. Oh, I wonder if he cut up the hot dogs and put them in the mac and cheese. I still do that to this day when I want to feel like a kid again. Don't knock it, alright? He liked beer, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't ever take Miller Lite. He only took Budweiser and other beer brands, but not Miller Lite. You know, good beer. Just kidding. Fucking all beer is gross. Regardless of this host's humble opinion on beer, Christopher must have been a man of class. It was the king of beers only for the legendary recluse. He almost never took anything homemade though. He said he didn't trust homemade stuff because it might be poisonous. How did he do this? You might be wondering. Hermit Man was very, very smart. He made it a point to come only twice a year, once in the spring, once in the fall, sometime during the week, and on an overcast night. He would always operate under the cover of darkness. He would paddle silently along the shore in a stolen canoe from a vacant camp, used it to transport propane tanks that he used for cooking and melting snow to use as water. He would always avoid using a wood fire so as not to give away his location with a smoke trail. And after using the canoes, he would return them to exactly the same position he found them in and would sprinkle pine needles on top to make it appear as though it had remained undisturbed. As you might guess, many people were afraid to go for a run or really do anything anywhere near here because they were uncomfortable with some guy maybe lurking around in the woods. Legend or not, that kind of shit tends to make people uncomfortable. The owners of the cabin eventually decided they wanted to know who this guy was, so they called the cops. They installed a hidden camera inside a smoke detector, which they had to check every morning because if they didn't, it would tape over itself. While reviewing the video, they saw him grab a bag of chips from the pantry, eat a couple of handfuls, and then put them right back. Ew, just take them, dude, what are you doing? After his brief snack, Knight starts inspecting other areas of the cabin. Looking in the fridge and in cabinets, open doors, just looking for batteries and everything, I guess. Nobody seemed to recognize him from anywhere, though. One theory was that maybe he's from out of state, and when he stayed there, he'd break in. Or my theory, he'd just been a hermit in the woods for the last 10 years, and nobody could recognize him. Cabin owners place a photo of him that they took from the video feed in a picture frame on the table for when he returns. Their thought was maybe he'll see himself, like the jig is up, we know you're here, and then stop. Except for, he hasn't seen himself the entire time he's been outdoors, so he probably wouldn't recognize a picture of himself anyway. Womp womp. I suppose there are certain aspects of living as a recluse that could be enjoyable for a little bit, like maybe a long weekend. Nobody's around in the woods. It's nice, it's quiet, it's peaceful. Surrounding yourself with nature and really getting immersed in it and connecting with it can be an incredibly enlightening experience. I just don't want to do that for more than a few hours at a time. It's either way too hot or way too cold to be outside where I live most of the time, and I'm also not very handy outdoors. I'm more of an indoor nerd. But on occasion, a hike or leisurely walk through the woods can be therapeutic. Christopher didn't want to risk exposing himself to anyone and having to give up his hermitude, so he would walk backwards across the snow so nobody could track him, from the tippy toes to his heel, so that it would appear as though he were walking the other direction. He might have been a bit apprehensive toward human interaction, but he definitely wasn't an idiot. For example, let's take a look at his campsite. For an outdoor area, he had it sectioned off to essentially have rooms. There was a kitchen area, a bathroom area, a sitting area, a bathing area, a laundry rock, or what was thought to have been a laundry rock since it was noticeably more polished than all the other rocks, 
During the winter months, he would eat as much as he could and get really, really fat so he could insulate himself against the cold. And in the springtime, he would shed pounds as the snow thawed. Oh yeah, and all those batteries that he stole? He used those for portable radios and other electronicals, so he was even able to stay fairly relevant on current events, which is pretty impressive for a hermit. It was a pretty big campsite too. It had tons of different outdoor amenities. He had a bedroll, a sitting plank, and just boxes and boxes and boxes of just fucking stuff. Several radios and buckets and tarps and tents and just all kinds of stuff that he'd collected over the years. And there were propane tanks, so many propane tanks. It was a clothesline that had also been tied to a tree for so long that it was sunk into the tree for about three inches. And I can't emphasize enough how many propane tanks there were. There, it wasn't just a few. It was there was a huge landfill of like stolen propane tanks just all over the ground, everywhere. There's tanks and tanks and tanks. And look under that rock, it's a tank. And look inside that tree, it's a tank. And look over that hill. Oh, what? It, no, is it? Yeah. Oh. Tank! Just tanks everywhere. There's also a Playboy magazine underneath his tent because trees are a lot of things, but sexy isn't one of them. Then on April 4th, 2013, the news breaks that they caught the hermit. Facebook, TV, radio, internet, newspapers, things this guy's never even heard of are telling people all about his capture. Game Warden Sergeant Terry Hughes arrested him with the help of a motion sensor camera that was installed with the help of Border Patrol agents to notify authorities if anybody was inside the camp. Christopher spent seven months in jail, almost all of it while awaiting trial. He also paid about $2,000 in restitutions for the burglaries and completed a co-occurring disorders program along with three years of probation. Over 27, it's thought that he made close to 40 break-ins per year, and after all was said and done, there were close to 1,000 burglaries total. What did the public have to say about this man? Or to this man? These are all from a documentary that I watched on YouTube. I'll put a link to it in the show notes if you want to watch it. Some of the questions from the people in this town featured in that interview were... How and why did you do this? Did you meet any bears? Why'd you steal all the food instead of learning how to hunt and fash? Who are you? Aside from wearing my shoes, how many times did you smile and laugh while you are in the woods? That's a good question. And the cop lady simply wanted to know, What's your name and I need your date of birth? Christopher is reluctant to give any possible motivations for why he chose to live in seclusion. Though he is quoted as saying, Solitude bestows an increase in something valuable. Perception. But when I applied my increased perception to myself, I lost my identity. There was no audience. No one to perform for. To put it romantically, I was completely free. That's a hell of a fucking quote. There's actually, you know, there's actually a lot of powerful wisdom in that too. The entire point of this show is to learn as many new things as I can and make them entertaining by looking at it from a different perspective. Erratic crackhead early adult swim style dark comedy that uses true crime as a springboard all performed by one man that sometimes pretends to be multiple people. That takes perspective. For now, I am but a humble podcast host and an amateur musician, but I can still hold out hope that one day I'll have an accolade as prestigious as the one bestowed upon Christopher Thomas Knight, a local sandwich shop named a sandwich after him. It's called The Hermit, and it's made with all locally stolen ingredients. When I open my restaurant, I'm absolutely doing the Bob's Burgers pun board thing for the names of my food. There's zero possibility that that's not happening that's for sure going to be a thing later on in my life currently as far as i can tell christopher is now living a quiet life in rural maine somewhere but we'll end this story with a quote from him about being compared to henry david thoreau christopher said thoreau was a dilettante because he only spent two years in the woods in a cabin not outdoors and uh oh yeah his mommy did all his laundry for him and that he was, quote, just a show-off who went out there and wrote a book saying, look how great I am. The thing that really sticks out to me about that story is the dedication and discipline it would take to be able to do that. If I lose my glasses for 10 minutes outside, I am fucked. My vision is terrible. But Christopher Knight managed to survive and live reasonably well, given the circumstances, for 27 years. A strange methodology, but... I can see how this story has become romanticized for so many people.
The next story we're going to go over today has a bit of romance applied to it too, except for it's absolutely not at all romantic and is instead gross and creepy. What happens? We'll tell you all about it after this quick word from our definitely not made up advertisers. Are you tired of car repairs? Are you sick of never having a place to go to fix your shit when you desperately need it the most? Do you find yourself needing a tune-up in the middle of the night? If you or anyone you know has these types of problems, you need to call Night Mechanic. Frame damage, blown tire, head gaskets, coolant leaks, spark plug swap, being mugged, need an extra hand in a fight, maybe you just have general knowledge questions about anything mechanical. If this sounds like you or a friend, you need to contact Night Mechanic yesterday. Just get two green laser pointers and flash them at the nearest traffic camera to summon the Night Mechanic to your immediate location. Stop wasting time wondering, oh, where do I go to get my tires fixed? Shut up! Get the laser, get your car fixed, get safe, get Night Mechanic. And we're back. Alex, turn the page. It's time for another story. Stop talking like that. Carl Tanzler, later known as Count Carl von Kossel, born February 8th, died July 3rd, 1952. Why are we talking about him? Because he did some really weird shit. Oh, what kind of weird shit did he do? An excellent question, Alex. We'll go into detail a little bit later on, but after some much failed attempts at pitching woo, he married a dead woman. He did what? Posthumous marriages, or necrogamy, have taken place several times throughout history, and perhaps even stranger. It is a lot more prevalent than I once thought. Basically, in many different countries for different reasons and at different times, certain individuals were legally allowed to marry a dead person. Sometimes the corpse was involved, other times it was more of a symbolic gesture. For example, a ghost marriage is a ceremony in China where one or both of the, quote, participants are deceased. These types of ceremonies have also been known to occur in France, southern Sudan, and is still practiced today. But why, though? Because tradition dictates we do so. In China, unmarried girls were often shunned by society, so parents thought it better to have her married to a literal corpse instead of being unmarried, as that was a worse look for the family. Even if it's to a ghost, it's better to be married than unmarried. And for the men, it's even stranger. Spouses of deceased men could adopt a child and give it the dead man's name to be able to continue on that family's lineage. Is that... Is that why dishonor on family? Because since genetically that isn't at all how that works, does the dishonor come from not living up to ghost daddy's standards of battle and social etiquette? I bet I'm pretty close. That sounds possible, I guess. I'm sure somebody will tell me after they listen to this. Nazi Germany used to have the wives of dead soldiers married to the corpse in order to legalize the child and provide benefits from that soldier. That one at least kinda makes sense from you know a legal like benefit standpoint, I guess. Many other countries have their own versions of spirit marriage or posthumous marriage. India, Japan, South Korea, Sudan, and even one kind of in the United States. A Venezuelan man died in Florida in 1987, and one week later, his alleged fiancé claimed she was actually his wife and therefore entitled to distribution rights for his estate. Another week later, the judge declared it legal, though it was reversed a year later when the children objected. That's the closest we've come legally in the United States as far as I can tell. But we aren't here today to talk about those other odd traditions. We're here to talk about a German man named Karl Tanzler. And if you aren't familiar with his story, you'll soon find out that what he did is a thousand times stranger than any cultural tradition. Born Karl with a K Tanzler in Dresden, Germany, 1877, not a lot is known about his early life, but he winds up in Australia for a time, arriving just prior to the start of World War I. While there, he became interested in electrical and engineering type works. He soon found himself purchasing all sorts of different equipment and property and boats and an organ for some reason. He was working on building a plane to cross the Atlantic just before the war broke out and shortly after, he was taken into a concentration camp as a POW. After the war, he is briefly reunited with his mother after finding her safe. Then he gets married to a woman named Doris Schaefer, has a couple of kids, and after three more years with mom and the fam, it's time to move on to the next chapter in this already insane life and move to America by way of Cuba in 1926. Zephyr Hills, Florida, to be specific. I've never heard of that town before, 
but it's in Pasco County, and it used to be a sundown town. Probably still a shithole, if I had to hazard a guess. Or maybe it's the one safe haven away from meth in the county. Couldn't tell you. If you know, tell me. One year later, in 1927, he says, Fuck my family, they can stay here in beautiful Zephyr Hills. I'm bored, so I'm gonna go to Key West and go work in a hospital. You know what? I'm gonna go against the herd mentality when it comes to Florida and say Zephyr Hills is a gorgeous city. It's so easy to take shots at Florida, but no one ever stands up for Florida. So you know what? Zephyr Hills, sight unseen from my tiny studio, I think you're gorgeous. I bet everybody in town is polite, well-dressed, clean, and helpful. The roads have been recently paved, buildings have been renovated, there's black people walking around again, everything's great here. There's also a beautiful black-haired woman walking around in Key West by the name of Elena Milagro de Hoyos. She was the daughter of a cigar maker and came from a rather large family, but all we really need to know is that she was first married to a man named Louis Mesa when she was 16, but he left her soon after she had a miscarriage with their first child. A few years later, when she's around 21, Elena falls deathly ill, and her mother brings her to the U.S. Marine Hospital located right there in Key West. It is there where she meets our guy, Carl Tanzler, and he is he is instantly smitten and besotted and will very soon be obsessed with this poor sick girl. By the way, Carl's family never found him again because when he arrived in Key West, that's when he started going by Count Varl von Kassel. This man may have been perhaps a little bit too open-minded, or maybe there's something in his upbringing that I couldn't find that could point to these behaviors. Carl also claimed he was a relative of the Countess von Kassel, whose ghost visited him throughout childhood. Ghost mommy Countess von Kassel supposedly showed Carl visions of his future bride-to-be in the form of a dark-haired woman. Sound familiar? If nothing else, his visions do seem to line up pretty conveniently with what he wants to do. When Elena first meets the good doctor, she is already very, very ill. Diagnosis? Tuberculosis. Carl says, oh shit, there's no cure for that yet. This is basically a death sentence right now. Not to worry, though. Dr. Corpse Bride is here to help. What was that now? I said Dr. Tanzler is here to help. Fuck hospital protocol. I'll bring a metric shit ton of tonics and elixirs and x-ray stuff to your house and fix you right up. I have the medical knowledge. Trust me. I'm a doctor. For the next four years, Carl would subject poor Elena to session after session of testing potions and procedures. All the fucking live long day professing his love for the dying woman. He would gift her with jewelry, clothing, and hats, and dresses, and perfume, and rings, and food, and what I'm guessing by today's standards would be incredibly cringy proclamations of his undying affections. These all obviously went unrequited, and also, to make matters worse, his treatments didn't work, and on October 25th, Elena dies of tuberculosis in 1931. Now, many people already thought Carl's behavior was strange before she died, and it definitely was, no arguing that. But after Elena dies, he was inconsolable. He insisted on paying for funeral and mortuary services, and then, get this, he even erected an enormous above-ground mausoleum in the Key West Cemetery, and he was the only one with the key. What the fuck? That had to be expensive, right? I would have to imagine so. He was also there every single day for the next two years, which Elena's family thought quite bizarre. Perhaps even more bizarre, Carl is suddenly fired from the hospital, reasons unknown, and stops visiting the tomb. I don't know why he got fired, but I do know why he stopped visiting the tomb. Elena's family also found this new behavior quite odd. They think everything he does is odd, but he was always weird when it came to Elena anyway. Several theories popped up as to why he stopped visiting her, but none of them could hold a candle to how bizarre the truth was. Oh, what did he do? What he did was bring a little red wagon with him to the tomb, walk into the tomb, grab Elena's corpse, and brings it back to the house. What the fuck? Why? Now he doesn't have to go visit. She's already home. Wouldn't she be horribly decom- She is in an extremely advanced state of decomposition, by the way. It's been two years since she died. He had maintained and repaired the body inside an old airplane that he had somehow repurposed into a medical laboratory. He used wires and coat hangers to reconstruct and support her skeleton, 
and put glass eyes in her skull to make it appear more realistic. This is a true story. Then he replaced any patches of decomposed skin with cloth soaked in plaster of Paris and wax. Then he stuffed the chest with an abdomen with rags and made a wig out of Elena's own hair that her mother gave to him as a memento. That's a weird gift. Why would she do that? The photos of this thing have got to be the most horrifying goddamn thing I have ever seen in my entire life. What the fuck? I'll, I'll post pictures for sure, but this thing is so creepy. It looks like a mannequin with a roadkill wig and poorly drawn on facial features. Particularly the eyebrows are what bothered me the most about it. It looks like the eyebrows that old ladies have to draw on because they can't grow them anymore. It, this thing does not look good. He would also dress the body in old clothes he had lying around the house that, you guessed it, also belonged to Elena. Would it not smell horrible? How is this man not a walking pucos 24-7? He doused the body in perfume and preserving agents to cover up the smell. And I guess if you want something bad enough, you can find a way. Um, this next part is super gross. Heads up, skip 15 seconds if you don't want to hear it. He then moved her body into his own bed where he slept next to it and for sure fucked it a lot. And very much like when she was alive, he brought the corpse all kinds of presents like new clothes and jewels and hats and dresses and shoes and socks and so on and so forth. And he installed a privacy curtain around his bed because why not at this point? Welcome back, listener. That feels like about 15 seconds. That was gross. Be glad you skipped that. Preservation remained a constant chore, however, with repairing skin and the skeleton on top of reapplying perfume and disinfectants and preserving agents. At no time did Carl ever think, maybe I should stop, because this is way too much work. But no, he just keeps going with it. How long do you think you could live with and, well, let's just say, interact with a dead body? I'm going to say for myself, zero seconds. I want no part of any of that. I haven't even been to a funeral in like 20 years, so I'm not prepared for that at all. He did this for seven years. Carl was largely considered a recluse by most of the town, but eventually some people in town started to notice him buying women's clothing and perfume. I wonder what scent it was. I really do. I really want to know what perfume he chose. I did some semi-related digging and I discovered a potential match. I think it could have been the, quote, sexiest scent yet created at that time, which was taboo. It had notes of patchouli, patchouli, carnation, carnation, and vanilla, vanilla. Or it could have been 20 carats, which was the closest thing any woman could get to actual diamonds. Oh, unrelated fun fact, diamonds aren't that rare, and you're paying too much for them. No scents were listed in this article to describe 20 carats, but it's noted as distinctly feminine notes. Maybe lavender, rose petal, and bergamot. Bergamot? Something weird like that, maybe? One fine day in October 1940, a young boy passed by Carl's house and saw him through the window dancing with what appeared to be a large stuffed doll in front of his fireplace. Curiously enough, he'd never been seen in public with a woman before, nor had anyone ever been seen going into his home. Could it be this strange figure was the recipient of all those fancy outfits and smells? Well, it didn't take long for Elena's family to catch wind of all this necro-nonsense, and they, of course, thought the whole thing was odd, especially considering it had been nine years since her death at this point. Their position this whole time is basically just them saying, Oh, how odd. That's so strange. Why would he be so weird? He's so odd. And they're right. It's just entertaining when I see that their reaction is every time. How odd. Elena's sister Florinda takes it upon herself to investigate and goes to Carl's house. She knocks on Carl's door and is let inside. I do wonder at this point in the story why he let her in the house. I mean, he knew what he was doing in there. Why, why let her in? Is the only taboo thing about this whole thing the perfume he sprayed on her? I wouldn't even want to tell anybody if I accidentally shit my pants one day, let alone married to and fucking a dead body for the better part of a decade. Florinda was not at all prepared for what awaited her inside, and it was more horrifying than what she could have ever thought possible. 
It was as though a life-size doll had been fashioned into a poorly dressed effigy of her dead sister, except for that it was her dead sister. She immediately flees in terror and notifies the police. Tanzler was later arrested for grave robbing and then sent to trial. He attended a preliminary hearing and stood to face charges of, quote, wantonly and maliciously destroying a grave and removing a body without authorization. And if everything leading up to this point wasn't bizarre enough for you, check this out. The case was dropped and he was released because the statute of limitations had already passed. So after nine years of living with a corpse and sleeping with it numerous times, he's finally caught and gets zero punishment for it. And if that wasn't enough, then they then he asked for the body back. And they, of course, told him, no, go fuck off to literally anywhere else in the world. Get out of here. And he for sure had sex with the corpse. They found modifications inside the vagina that allowed for sexual intercourse, which is... Of course, super gross. The body was on display for a brief time at a local funeral home where about 7,000 people came by to see it. And it was later reburied in an unmarked grave in a secret location to ensure that no one else, looking right at you, Carl, dug it back up. Public reaction to this whole thing was surprisingly compassionate. For whatever reason, a lot of people in town began expressing a feeling that Carl was simply an eccentric or a hopeless romantic. Just a lonely old man looking for love in all the wrong places. I would fucking say so. Tanzler eventually moved back to near Zephyr Hills where he lived quietly and became a citizen in 1950. During this last chapter of his life, he used a death mask to create another life-sized effigy of Elena. Not a corpse this time, I don't think and lived with it until he died on July 3rd, 1952. Some say his body was found in the arms of the doll, but the obituary said he was found on the floor behind the organ that I mentioned in the very beginning of this story. Some say that he swapped the body with an effigy before moving away, or that he'd paid someone to return the remains to him, but that has never been confirmed. I wonder if someday someone will dig up and marry his corpse. I doubt it and sincerely hope not. I feel like people that saw him as a hopeless romantic after the trial didn't have a firm understanding of what romantic means. And it can be sort of tricky. You know, it seems to vary from person to person. Some people find it more romantic to say less and do more. Some people are enticed by physical acts of service or positive affirmations. And much like myself, some people find romance in the written word. The simplistic beauty of a carefully worded phrase can evoke the deepest emotions in some people. Other times, a carefully worded phrase can have the opposite effect. This last story is probably the creepiest of the three, but I really only say that because there's more of an air of mystery around this one. Corpse Bride is creepy for sure, but we kind of know exactly what happened and who did it there. Not so much with this next story. Everybody get in the car. We have one more road trip to make. For this one, we're going over to Ohio. Don't worry, though. Bowling for Soup told us 15 years ago that there's nothing wrong with Ohio except the snow and the rain. The town we're going to probably sees its fair share of rain, as Circleville is most widely known for two things, the series of creepy letters that we're going to talk about in a few minutes, and also an annual big-ass pumpkin show. That's not the name of the event. It's just the pumpkin show. But these are some seriously big-ass pumpkins. If you go to the website, there are photos of all the biggest pumpkins in the contest, and they all have their weight painted on them. The biggest one is 1,837 and a half pounds. Damn near literally a ton of pumpkin. That would make so much pie. Oh, wait, no, don't. Don't use that for pie. I can't imagine it would be good for pie being that big. It's, it would not be sweet at all. More like a gourd. There seems to be a source of perennial competition in Bob Liggett, who has won the contest a whopping 13 times, and his largest pumpkin entry weighed in at 1,964 pounds, 36 pounds away from a full ton. How do you grow a pumpkin that big? Dude, I can't even grow hair. I have no fucking idea how to grow pumpkins. A lot of water and sunlight, I guess? This is a four-day event, by the way. Four days of pumpkin shit? Yeah, you have to make time for all the parades. 
There's the Miss Pumpkin Parade, the Little Miss Pumpkin Parade, which is worse, a dog parade, a baby parade, a band parade, and you gotta celebrate all the wonderful administrative and support staff for such an event. How do you do that? With another goddamn parade. Why not? Don't worry, though. There's also all the pageants to go along with all those parades. You can go ogle all the women in attendance if you want. I would be bored to fucking tears at any kind of beauty pageant. I want no part of that. Especially ones for children. Replace the word women from a few seconds ago with children, and it's the exact same thing, and it's way... Pageants are weird. I don't... They're... Stop with pageants. What they're saying, really, with kids' beauty pageants is which of these kids is the least ugly, and that's not a factor in anything. Who fucking cares? Just go let your kids be kids. Like, maybe at the big wheel race, which might actually be fun if it weren't also kids riding them. I personally think it would be way more entertaining to watch adults try to race a big wheel. Drunk adults. I want to see a bunch of guys get hammered and race a big wheel down an equally big hill. And the only brakes you have are your feet and a wall of giant pumpkins at the bottom to stop you. Okay, I think that's enough pumpkin and pumpkin-related bullshit for a while. I can wait until Thanksgiving. March 1977. Somebody began anonymously sending letters to the residents of Circleville, Ohio. By the time the letters stopped in the 1990s, there were somewhere around a thousand letters received by various people most of them postmarked in Columbus, about 30 miles north of the small city. The first victim to receive a letter was Mary Gillespie, and wound up receiving a majority of the attention from the anonymous letter writer as well. Mary was a bus driver, and from what I can gather, a well-liked one. The first letter sent to her accused Mary of having an affair with school superintendent Chalmers, I mean Gordon Massey. It reads! Stay away from Massey. Don't lie when questioned about meeting him. I know where you live. I've been observing your house and know you have children. This is no joke. Please, take it serious. Everyone concerned has been notified. It will all be over soon. And if that letter wasn't creepy enough, her husband Ron also received a letter not long after the first one. It reads, Mr. Gillespie, your wife is seeing Gordon Massey. You should catch them together and kill them both. He doesn't deserve to live. We know what kind of car you drive. We know where your kids go to school. These letters come as quite a shock to Mary and Ron. They were well-liked and respected in the community and had been together since high school. Many people in town wouldn't have a bad word to say about either one of them. And for the next several weeks, more and more letters would arrive claiming that they were watching the house and their children. One letter to Ron said they would kill Mary if he couldn't stop her affair, and another letter said they would kill Ron if he didn't report the affair to the school board. And these letters are really creepy. Like, here's another one. Gillespie, you have had two weeks and done nothing. Make her admit the truth and inform the school board. If not, I will broadcast it on CBs, posters, signs, and billboards until the truth comes out. This would be so scary. Who the fuck is watching my house and my kids? How do you know all this stuff? Is, wait a minute, is it that hermit guy? Or maybe Carl's dancing around out in the woods with his makeshift doll. I hope it's Hermit Guy, because I have a sneaking suspicion that I just wouldn't get along well with Carl. Just like how Mary had a sneaking suspicion of her own. She had initially suspected fellow bus driver David Longberry. He had previously made a few romantical advances toward Mary, which she obviously rejected because married. Sadly, that was her only lead at the time, and who would admit to something like that? So. Ron and Mary had no idea what else to do about any of this crazy letter BS, so they got in touch with Ron's sister Karen and her husband Paul Freshour. Together, they decided that Paul would write a letter to David saying that, We know it's been you writing the letters. And for a few weeks the letter stopped. It seems to have worked until another letter appears. It didn't work at all. I'm calm again. August 19th, 1977. Ron gets a phone call whilst at home, chilling in his favorite sitting chair. Whoever was on the other end of that phone must have had some pretty intense things to say because Ron jumps up angrily out of his chair, grabs his gun, and charges out the door to, quote, talk to the person writing the letters. At least that's what he told his kids. Ron, however, was not successful in negotiations with the mysterious scribe. 
nor would he be successful in any future negotiations as he died in a car accident a short time after leaving the house. He wasn't found until a few hours later with his truck crashed into a tree. Official police reports claim his death was the result of a drunk driving accident, but his family claims he'd not been drinking that day. So is that enough to put a stop to the letters? One of the two people receiving them is dead? No, not by a long shot. Not long after Ron's death, other people began receiving letters too. These ones were about Sheriff Radcliffe, the officer that filed the police report. These letters claimed that Dwight was involved in a cover-up with Ron's death. Officer Dwight had said that he initially suspected foul play, but the other person, quote, involved, passed a polygraph test, and Ron also had a blood alcohol content of .16, which would suggest that drug driving was the cause of the accident. Damn, it's gotta be hard to get a blood alcohol content that high without drinking. I wonder why the family would make that claim. Could it be they were in denial because they didn't want to be associated with alcohol like that? Or could it be that they just needed any sort of thing to deflect off of because it turns out Mary was totally having an affair with the superintendent? Ah, what? Really? The guy was right? Yeah. Turns out whoever was writing the letters got some pretty solid intel while somehow remaining completely anonymous. That is as impressive to me as it is creepy and terrifying. Ugh. So, shit's getting pretty real in Ohio right now. So real that we need to fast forward a few years to February 1983 to keep it real. The letterman had taken to placing crude signs all around town now, many of them along Mary's bus route. Guess what they said? You're a whore. No. Fuck you, Mary cheating bitch. No, it's worse than that and not about Mary this time. Oh, superintendent is a pedophile. There you go. The strategically placed signs accused Gordon Massey of raping Mary's 12-year-old daughter. Well, we can't just have this sign plastered up around town for everyone to see, can we? Nah, I better just take that down. Wait a minute. Hold on. There's something behind the poster. It's a box and some string. They're both connected to each other. You know what? Let me just take this whole thing home and see what it is. Maybe there's a clue inside this box. What's in the box? It's an embarrassing snapshot of us at the Chinese New Year party. Oh shit, someone took a picture of that? Probably, but that's not what's in the box. Oh, thank God. Wait, what was in the box then? Tell me, damn it. A gun. Don't tell me that. Here, play with this for a little while and find us some good music to play in the background. Fine, but I'm going to play it at full volume. Don't do that. They have to be able to hear me. Alex. Alex! Okay. Um, be prepared for that. Alex might sabotage the rest of the show with too much loud music, though. Um, so there's a gun in the box that had been crudely booby-trapped to shoot whoever pulls down the poster. Mary had been very lucky to have noticed the string in the box. The gun also belonged to someone we've already talked about, Paul Freshour. By this time, everyone in town had received some version of the dreaded correspondence, but nobody had been as close to death as Mary just was. I mean, unless you count Ron, but that probably wasn't attempted murder. And now that they had a name and physical evidence, it appeared that the mystery was finally solved. Paul's arrested and charged with the attempted murder of Mary Gillespie, which he of course denies. He claimed that the gun had been stolen out of his garage a few weeks prior. But his wife Karen, in true goddamn Karen fashion, throws him under the bus and says he is the letter writer. What the fuck, Karen? God damn it, Karen. I guess we've been dealing with them for longer than I thought. Get it together, lady. Trial time comes around in October 1983. Though it's not a very strong case, there is very little physical evidence linking him to the gun, apart from it being registered in his name. Paul also had an alibi for the afternoon that the package was likely thought to have been placed, i.e., multiple witnesses seeing him at home because he had to take off that day to wait on house repairs. Somebody managed to erect a giant mausoleum in his backyard without him noticing. However, none of that mattered because handwriting experts said that two of the letters could be his handwriting and that that last part wasn't true, so he was convicted and sentenced to the maximum penalty, 7 to 25 years. But only for the attempted murder charge. He wasn't formally charged with sending the letters. Well, did it work? Were they right? Was he the guy? We'll get to that in a little bit. And what happened to turning on the music? Oh, right, 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 right. Not long after he went in, the Blues Clues theme song started playing at everyone's house again. 
We just got a letter. It is really creepy. I don't know who wrote it. Please God make it stop. Which didn't make it any better for Paul on the inside. The warden thought that he had somehow managed to write them while in prison and had him placed in solitary as punishment. That's bullshit, warden. I would be so furious. I clearly didn't do any of this. Let me the fuck out. Look, I even got one of the letters. I didn't write it to myself. What? Now you're saying I have an accomplice helping me write letters from the outside? Preposterous. I mean, come on. Look at this letter. Why and how would I possibly write this to myself? The letter says, Now when are you going to believe you aren't going to get out of there? I told you two years ago. When we set them up, they stay set up. Don't you listen at all. And there were even more letters coming after that, some while Paul was in solitary. One of the letters even accused the prosecutor in Paul's trial of murdering a pregnant woman. Paul spent the next 10 years in prison for the attempted murder charge, but was never actually charged with writing the letters. I kind of think maybe it was him, since shortly around the time of the release, the letters also stopped. And there was also a lot of other things pointing to him. I might have to do another segment on these letters in a future episode. There's a lot going on. Paul was released from prison in May of 1994 and maintained his innocence until his death at the age of 70 on June 28, 2012. But was Paul actually the person that sent the letters? Maybe, maybe not. In the early 90s, investigations revealed some startling evidence that never made it to trial. Investigator on the case Martin Yant had spoken to another bus driver that claimed to have driven by the same spot that the box was found about 20 minutes before Mary did. When she drove by, she saw a man standing near an El Camino looking suspicious and maybe taking a leak. She didn't get a good look at him though, but said he was a large man with sandy brown hair. Which was not at all what Paul looked like, as he had dark brown hair and was not very big. Or could it have been the superintendent, Gordon Massey, trying to deflect attention off of himself? Maybe the other bus driver guy, David Longberry, was secretly a genius sociopath with a penchant for writing. I don't really think either of those are a strong candidate, but this is a weird fucking case, so could be anything. Yant also said that, I like that name by the way, Yant. He also said that while talking with Paul in prison, Paul suggested that the thief who stole his gun was none other than his own son, Mark. Paul was extremely secretive about that though, and it never made its way into any headlines. That is until September 11th, 2012, never forget, when Mark's body was found floating in the fucking river just before sunrise. He had shot himself in, I don't know how to pronounce that, S-C-I-O-T-O, Scioto River? He had shot himself in an apparent suicide. And I don't know why, but that's weird to me. Did he shoot himself while in the water? Did he roll into the river from elsewhere? And if you're gonna shoot yourself, why bother going to the river? That's just kinda odd to me. Karen later on said that he had suffered from depression for a long time. Yeah, I guess I'd be depressed if I had a Karen for a mom too. Forensic letter expert Beverly East did some extra due diligence, as she puts it, and believes she has at long last revealed the identity of the letter writer and links it all together with the letter G. G is for jungle. J. J is for jungle. G is for spot. Well, where the hell is that? That's what's in the box. I don't get it. Give it a minute. Beverly East determined that due to the similar way the letter G and a few errant twos that could also be mistaken as threes were written across hundreds of samples ranging from 1977 oh. to 1994, there you go, she's almost positive they could have only originated from one person. And that person was, in her own words, 100% Paul Freshout. So there's that. According to Beverly East, anyway, Paul Freshour was, without a doubt, the perpetrator of the super creepy letters. Could he have possibly had a hand in Ron's death? Seems unlikely, but I suppose weirder things have happened. I mean, this episode is a fantastic example of weird things happening. There were a ton of secrets floating around this little town, too. I wonder how he found all this stuff out. Oh yeah, and it turns out that that letter about the prosecutor murdering a pregnant lady was at least sort of based on a truth. Roger Klein, the prosecutor, had an affair with the dead woman at some point, 
and was also found to be the father of her unborn child. And the secrets go even deeper than that. The guy that performed Ron's autopsy, Ray Carroll, was outed as a pedophile in 1993 and was charged with 12 counts of gross immorality, sex crimes, corruption of a minor, pornography, which I didn't know was a charge, obscenity, and indecent exposure. Jesus, gross immorality is right. And there are plenty more secrets floating around that town that we could discuss, and I want to because there's just so many more things that we could get into on that. We'll definitely revisit that later on, but that will have to wait until the next volume of Anthology of Weirdness. I don't know about you guys, but I had a ton of fun with this episode today. I honestly don't know which of these stories I enjoyed the most. They're all weird and intriguing in their own unique ways, but I think we can probably all agree that we don't need any more Carl Tanzlers in the world. If you liked one or all of those stories, you can let me know by telling your friends to listen, or better yet, if you have the option, leave an iTunes review. Those seem to matter a lot for some reason. I don't know why, but they do. I'm pretty sure I'm going to do another episode like this in the future. Also, I really enjoyed the format for putting this together. It made it feel so much more smooth to me, so we'll have some more fun with these later on. As for the next episode, we'll just have to wait and see. I never know when I'm going to stumble across an episode-worthy story, but I'll be sure to let you know when I do. Thank you again so much for listening today, and any other day that you've chosen to listen. I am out of time. I have to go find a secluded traffic camera with my laser pointer and ask somebody a couple of questions. I will see you all in a couple weeks, everybody. Goodbye and stay, stay kind. kind.